I'm sure that all of us have had the experience of whether we picked it up or someone else picked it up or of having a box with a picture on it and inside the box is various pieces of a puzzle and you dump it out on the table and you look at it and it's just a just a whole bunch of pieces and it doesn't make sense you look at the picture and you think that's what it's supposed to be but you look at the what's on the table before you and it's just this massive pile of all these different if you pick up one piece of the puzzle sometimes and if you have the picture you can look at it and say okay this goes here and this goes there and and the, what's the first thing that you do when yeah you, you do the edges cuz that's the easy part and you you know it still takes a little while but you uh, you do the edges and then you start to fill in the pieces and it takes a while especially if it's kind of an obscure picture and you've got the sky there and it's just all kind of just different shades of blue and as we approach this subject it's kind of like that it's this all this information scriptures and things said here and there at different times and everything and it can be overwhelming and you could just say I'll never understand this but I don't think that's uh, that's not true and on the other hand I said last time that um, we need to approach the subject with humility uh, about ourselves and about how we think of others that would have a different view because of all the subjects in the scripture this is one you can get to be wrong <laughs> and still uh, be part you, you can't be wrong on the gospel there's certain things that you can't be wrong on but you can be wrong on this and after all even the people that love the lord jesus had his first coming and their expectation of what would happen when he came they had it wrong and he didn't lambaste them and you dummies what's wrong with you and you know you got he didn't do that he just said no no that's not how it's going to be and uh, i think he would say that to to many uh no that's not how it's going to be but uh, unfortunately, you can develop um, how you view the scripture. And I think last week, or last, yeah, was it last week? I, um, yeah, I experienced that. I always read in John where it says, when John came to the tomb, and he, he looked and he believed. And I always read that, yeah, he believed in the resurrection. But then you... Martin pointed out, you look right in the next verse, and he didn't believe. It was the exact opposite how I always read that passage. Just kind of glossed over it. And the very next verse says, For they did not yet know the scripture that said he must rise from the dead. And it tells you right there in the text that that's not what he meant when he said, and he believed. (laughs) But we can read things, and we're so used to reading it a certain way that we... You can't see the forest for the trees if you pass over things and you've read them so many times. 
But uh, there's no need to be discouraged about that. But it's just like a puzzle, and you're just moving things around and clicking, you know, you put this there, oh, that doesn't work, and you... And uh, keep in mind that it is a subject, um, when it comes to things that haven't happened yet, or things that have happened and you're not aware that they have happened, we need to have a great deal of humility. Men like to systematize their theology, and they like to have all these ducks in a row, and it's, got to, and it's going to work out like this. And, yeah, we need to have humility on this subject. Now, I insulted you some time ago when I said that uh, what you believe about last things or the... Uh, you probably got it wrong... Uh, I did apologize for that. Um, But when it comes to this subject, yeah, many people do have it wrong. But uh, having said that, they're the Lord's people, and he loves them, even if they have it wrong. I mean, he, yeah, his own disciples would demonstrate that. Even Peter, who said, Lord, certainly this will not happen to you. Imagine, And he rebuked him, but he had it wrong. He didn't, there was no thought in his mind about a crucified Messiah. Imagine, and that, that was really wrong. Uh, and he still, he reproved them and he, he kept teaching them. And that's what we want uh, as well. So we've been going through the, uh, because our passage in Peter talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, and that day is a, a day, I believe, of final, universal judgment of this world, uh, which he talks about in the passage, universal judgment, the flood. We all read that in Genesis 6, and we know it's happened You can observe that uh, all over the globe. But there is coming a day of the Lord, uh, and this present world will be destroyed by fire, even the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that is going to be, it seems from the passage, a literal fire that's going to burn up this world. Uh, Often there is... Figurative fire in the scripture, but uh, there is also a literal fire. So we want to understand these things, but to understand the day of the Lord in the New Testament, we need to understand it in the Old, first of all. And uh, most days of the Lord in the Old Testament were local in nature. Remember we talked about all of this? They were local in nature. They were uh, often... Although not universally, they were often uh, foreign armies coming in to uh, destroy, in uh, many cases, or in some cases, the people of God, the the Jews, for their unfaithfulness and for their wickedness. Um, But it was also in other nations as well, Babylon, Egypt, you name it, Idumea, God would come in judgment on other nations and his own people for their wickedness. 
and um, he did it through foreign armies. And uh, except for Joel, where he did it through a locust plague. Um, But he speaks of that plague as if it was an army coming in. And he even says he's going to shout before his army. The Lord roars from Zion is the language of the Old Testament. Even though if you had some pagan there, you wouldn't see, I don't see the Lord. (laughs) But uh, he would come in judgment and he said it so. So those are things to remember. Keep that on the shelf. Keep that in your toolbox when we're going to uh, interpret the scriptures and the language of uh, the New Testament and the language of uh, the Old Testament. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, uh, our passage in Second Peter is talking about a worldwide, universal judgment of this world and the coming of Christ. And we, that has not happened yet. And that's the outside of the puzzle. Like this, there's nothing outside of that. You know that there isn't a piece of the puzzle that's out here. It's all inside here, and we just have to understand it. And I believe that most or all uh, Christians would believe that Christ is coming again, bodily to the earth. And um, he is coming to take away his people. Now, I don't know if you've probably heard and even have studied and maybe even believe in what's called the rapture. How many have heard that term? Everyone's heard that term, and it actually means extreme joy. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but it has come to mean being caught away um, from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. And in, uh, there's two basic uh, frameworks in Christian theology that I would say most people would be in that one camp or the other. And that is that we're now waiting or looking for um, the rapture when all the saints in the world will be caught up instantaneously in the um, blink of an eye, in the uh, twinkling of an eye is the term. And that will begin the tribulation period, which is spoken of in the book of Revelation. I don't believe this. I'm just telling you what's out there. Um, I have, for many years, I think I told Matthew, for 20 years of my life, this is what I believed and taught and et cetera, et cetera. And... um, So that rapture will happen, and if you haven't watched it, don't, but all these left-behind movies, planes crashing and trucks going off the guardrail because the people driving it were Christians, and and there's mayhem in the world, and everyone's wondering, where have all these people gone, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Looks really good in a movie. Uh, The only trouble is, it's not true. Uh, It's just not true, especially when half of the United States leaves. And are we to believe that half of the United States is born-again believers? Anyway, this is hilarious, 
but it does make for good movies and scares a whole bunch of people. I can remember being in a church, and my friend had lying down on the pew, and I came in, and he's gone. And I thought, oh, the rapture's happening. <laughs> like, I'm serious. This is like people can really get uh, disturbed, bent out of shape, and everything. And uh, it's all from watching movies. Don't watch movies. Just bad for your brain, bad for your theology. Um, but, yeah, a little bit of humor. But, um, so that starts the tribulation, the great tribulation, which incidentally isn't in the King James Bible, that word, phrase, but it is in all other modern translations. I think Martin and I kind of checked that out. And so the great tribulation is a seven-year period in which for three and a half years there will be peace. It starts with the rapture. The church is gone. The Holy Spirit's gone. I'm just telling you, this is what, I don't say I'm believing this, but this is what's, and then the Antichrist makes a um, covenant with Israel of peace, and at three and a half years, he breaks that covenant of peace, and then divine judgment starts, and thus the book of Revelation enters in. And that's all these cataclysmic events that are literally fulfilled um, will take place in that three-and-a-half-year period. Everything. Everything. The fire-breathing prophets. Everything. Like prophets that are two prophets in the world that are burning people up with their mouths. Flamethrowers and everything else. Helicopter gunships um, are the, you know, and then you just go on and on. (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm not trying to laugh. <laughs> but, I mean, I've heard it all, yeah. The, the tails are, yeah, flamethrowers and everything. Apache helicopters and, you know, everything. F-15 Falcon, all this stuff. And, of course, trying to fit that in the book of Revelation kind of makes sense. you got horses and swords and everything. Well, okay, he really, John was seeing that. And he was really seeing it. There's problems with every view, and some, some views have bigger problems. Um, but that's basic it. And Matthew 24 is melded with the book of Revelation. And there you have it. Um, all of those signs and things are all going to be literally fulfilled. And the problem with when you say that, hmm, maybe I... That doesn't make sense. Is that, what? You don't believe the Bible? <sighs> yes, I do. Um, but um, it's clear that many things in the scripture are to be taken uh, not as literal, but as figurative. And, but there is a literal meaning to the figurative speech, if you can understand that. It's raining cats and dogs. It's not now, but if I said that, you would not think that literal cats and dogs were falling out of the sky. You wouldn't, uh, because you know the English language. And, but you could say that, and people would know what, you're, what you mean. Um, it's that kind of thing. 
it, there's, yeah, you're looking outside, and what that really means is it's raining really hard. Well, why didn't you just say it's raining really hard? Because it's, yeah, just more fun or whatever to say. It's raining cats and dogs. Or in sheets. You're not looking out there seeing bed sheets flying down out of the sky. It's just a way to describe something. And language is like that. All kinds of figurative things that are used. And the Bible is like that. Sometimes it uses hyperbole. Uh, Sometimes it uses figurative language. Sometimes it uses literal language. Even in the prophets themselves, you'll have a literal fulfillment of something, and then you'll have a figurative one right after. And even in prophecies that have been fulfilled, here I looked at one yesterday, Awake thou sword against the the shepherd. You'll smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's not obviously a perfect quote, but you get the picture. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus. He, But the Lord Jesus wasn't killed with a sword. He was crucified. So if you want to take every single prophecy and say, this is how it's got to be, but him riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, that literally happened. And so people said, because that literally happened, all the other ones have to be exactly the way they're said there or else it's not true. And we've, if you examine them, you'll find that that's not true either. And that's just one example of it. And Martin, I think, mentioned one about um, Agabus taking Paul's belt and binding him. And that didn't literally happen that way. It's meant he was taken prisoner, etc., etc., um, so we need to uh, understand these things and we're just remember we're putting pieces together humbly and, but I think there is uh, yeah the, the what's most commonly believed about last things in the Christian church is not correct and the reason for it uh, some people believe that yeah we're going to avoid suffering, and I don't see that in the rest of the Bible for his people. We are actually in an oddball place that uh, North America has had, for the most part, peace for Christians for 300 or however long since its inception, left the persecutions of Europe to come here to a very peaceful place. That is changing. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, society is Uh, not a friend of Christians. All that to say, let's uh, go back to, I think we ended off in Zephaniah, so we're we're in Zechariah. And yeah, I've read this a number of times, and this is a piece of the puzzle. Just Have you ever tried to fit something into a puzzle and you're there and you're trying to make it work and your wife said, no, that one doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. Uh, so this is one of the ones, uh, okay, I'm going to lay that aside for a little while. So this piece of the puzzle. Um, but throughout uh, the book of Zechariah, there's a phrase, in that day, in that day. And it's over and over again. You'll read right from the beginning chapters. But as it gets to the end of the book, it's very frequent. 
And we'll just, uh, starting in chapter 12 and verse 3. And in that day, and then uh, talks about Jerusalem. And then you read down, uh, and there's just a lot of things that mm, yeah, don't make sense. Um, and then in verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, in premillennial theology, so I didn't, I didn't finish the seven years. At the end of the seven years, Christ returns, and then he, uh, how would I say it? He renovates the world by fire. Because that's the terms used. And then uh, he comes back with his people. Those and the the saints are... um, Yeah, I'm trying to make this even fit in uh, my understanding of their theology. But anyway, Christ comes back at the end of the seven years. And then that starts the millennial kingdom. Of which all the... um, Promises to Israel about an earthly kingdom are fulfilled, and there Christ reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, there's another rebellion, um, and an army of 200 million attacks Jerusalem and the holy city, and Christ destroys them by, the, by his coming. Again, for the third time. I'm just... That's how it's working out. Um, so that's sort of the basic framework of what's called premillennial theology. And then all millennial believes that there, there is no earthly millennium with Christ reigning from Jerusalem. But Peter tells us that we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth right in our passage. So there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But it won't be like people think with lions lying down with lambs and kids sticking their hands and cobra dens and all of that stuff. Um, and we don't have time to get into all of that right now. But I'm just trying to get the basic frame of the, the puzzle there. Um, and that's what people in what's called... Uh, pre-millennial theology, meaning Christ is going to come back before the millennium bodily, and that's what's going to start. An earthly reign of Christ literally on the earth, with people living till 100 years old, uh, dying, thinking that they're a child, and people living for great ages and all that is going to be returned. I'm not saying I believe that. I'm just saying that's what um, other Christians and they are Christians, believe that. So, coming back to our passage. Um, In 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, that they may look upon me whom they have pierced. Now that particular phrase is quoted in John's Gospel, but it's spoken of, of two Roman soldiers who pierced the side of Christ and then looked on him whom they had pierced. And people say, well, that wasn't fulfilled totally and it has to be another day. 
Um, and then if you look at 13, chapter 13, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Now when you read that, you say, that is, that's not literally a fountain. Remember in school you'd press your foot on a thing and then water would come out and you'd wash your hands. That's not what it's talking about. What's it talking about? It's talking about Christ and his crucifixion being the fountain that cleanses us from sin. So the language is figurative, but it has a literal meaning. Um, and then it goes in, down and it says uh, in verse 4, and it to come to pass in that day. And you get the feeling that all these things are kind of going to happen in, in one day <laughs> um, at the same time. If you go down to verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I'll turn my hand upon the little ones. And we know that's already happened. And as we pointed out before, the Lord wasn't killed with a sword. It just means violence against him. The Lord's the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. They fled at the cross or when he was arrested. But then finally in uh, chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then this is, um, for many, a future event. And Christ, I believe this is the end of that seven-year tribulation period when his feet, in verse 4, are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And then it's going to split in half the land of Israel, and the Mediterranean Sea is going to flow into the land of Israel, and thus the fulfillment of the desert shall blossom like a rose. I'm just telling you, I don't believe this, but that's what people would say is going to happen. And... Um, but then you read passages like verse 6. It says, It come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, and it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. So people are looking for a day that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the evening or like the morning. It's not really bright, but it's, I don't believe it's talking about that. It's not talking about a day where it's kind of just, not gloomy, but it's not, the sun hasn't come, it, and people are just scratching their heads and thinking, hmm. And then in verse 9, it's, uh, it says, or verse 8, And it shall be in that day that the living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea, and in the summer and winter it shall be. So people are looking for, yeah, new waters coming out, literal waters coming out of Jerusalem. And all of this stuff, and then you're scratching and thinking, that's kind of weird, but hey, it's the millennial kingdom, anything can happen. And, but when you read Ezekiel's prophecy of water coming out from under the temple and flowing east and west, it's obvious that it's figurative language. It says, waters to swim in. 
and speaking of the glories of the new covenant and of knowing God in the spirit, having a new heart and a new, uh, new uh, renewed mind and everything else that the, the New Testament speak about. And so people, but then I thought, hmm, okay, all the days of the Lord in the Old Testament were literally days of the Lord, and there was judgment coming. And so I couldn't see a figurative day of the Lord here, so I just kind of took that piece of the puzzle and said, just set that aside for now, and we'll move on, if you'd be good with that. Um, um, But all that to say, brethren, that there's many things that we kind of don't understand, and we don't want to force the puzzle, because then when you do, you find out, oh, I got to move this guy anyway, right? We've all, we've all done that. It's not going to work there, so maybe we just, it, it has to go somewhere else we don't understand completely. I'm not saying that you don't, I'm just saying that I don't. <clears throat> and turn over to Malachi chapter 4, the last Mention of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Before we get into the new, and then the day of the Lord is relatively uh, uh, not mentioned much in the New Testament. And chapter 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we know from uh, Matthew 17.10 that uh, the Elijah that was to come wasn't the literal Elijah of the Old Testament, but was John the Baptist. Uh, The disciples said, Now that they knew, he spoke of them, of John the Baptist. So we have Elijah has come to the people of Israel. He was John the Baptist, coming in the the spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, Even he did more than Elijah did, because he turned the hearts of Israel back to God. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, that was a wonderful time, but it says that, is, that event is going to happen before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, at that point in history, which is uh, after the people came back to the land, they're rebuilding the temple and the wall and everything, the day of the Lord spoken of in Matthew 24, I'm going to tell you is the day of the Lord, uh, is yet future by quite a long distance, at least 400 years, maybe more, in the future. Now, some would say, no, that's not the day of the Lord speaking. This is the second coming of Christ. Okay, um, Yep, we can go with that too, but uh, I would see this as still the potential for that great and dreadful day as being the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, 
now probably the greatest passage in the New Testament on the day of the Lord, even though it is not mentioned in that passage itself. It fits all the criteria that the Old Testament would lay out for a day of the Lord. And what are they? What's the... We talked about armies coming in, foreign armies, to destroy Jerusalem and to mete out vengeance on the people of God for their wickedness. Um, And, remember we said the day of the Lord also includes the um, sparing or the uh, rescuing of the faithful, of believers. And you'll see that in, uh, in Jeremiah where Baruch's thinking, I'm in trouble here, I'm going to get killed. And he, the Lord says, no, you won't be. You're, you're going to have your life for a prey. Jeremiah was spared, and he followed the unfaithful people of God until they were utterly consumed. Um, but he was spared. I don't believe it's, re- does anyone, it's not recorded how Jeremiah died, is it? No. Um, so, and then you have Lot, uh, judgment on Sodom, and Lot and his two daughters. More could have left, but they, they fled. Uh, Noah, judgment comes, Noah spared. That's consistent throughout the Bible. And here it is the same thing. In Matthew 24. Now, as we said before, many people would take this um, as the literal second coming of Christ to the earth. Um, I don't take it that way. And we'll, we'll tell you why as we move along. Uh, there's just no way we're going to finish this, but we're going to make a start anyway. Now, those that would see this as the second coming of Christ would say that the events that happened here were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, but only very, very small portion. Uh, I believe it would even be uh, right up to verse 2 of Matthew 24, and then after that, it's still future. That's, uh, and if we want to read that, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See not all these things, verily I say unto you, that there shall not be left left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And people would say, yep, 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 that's definitely the destruction of Jerusalem. But the rest of the passage is talking about future and the second coming of Christ. So you launch forward right now, 2,000 years approximately, and all of these events are still future in many people's uh, views, or in the, um, yes, and it's going to be, this is the seven-year tribulation and all of that stuff. So that's how most people take it. When I say most, would that be, uh, would that be, yeah, evangelical people. That's how most people take. Um, 
And, uh, but there are people that would believe otherwise, that still believe the Bible. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but it's important to notice, if, you know, again, trying to fit some pieces of the puzzle in here. Uh, let's read back in Matthew 23. We'll start reading uh, in verse 31. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Berechias, whom ye slew before the, between the temple and the altar." Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So he basically said, the Lord says to these Pharisees, and by extension those that believed them and acted uh, and believed what they believed, that through the history of the people of God, they have killed the prophets. As you read the Old Testament, you'll see that that is so. And uh, he tells them the degrees. Some you're going to kill and crucify. That's the worst. Some you're going to persecute from city to city. And they did that. And he says he sends them prophets and wise men and scribes. We know that those are Christians, for the most part, the apostles, uh, who were, uh, all of those people were treated uh, such. And then he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of Abel, the first uh, prophet to be killed, to the last, uh, I believe, chronologically in the, uh, the Old Testament at the time, uh, Zacharias, the son of Berechias. He said all of those prophets, the blood of all of them, is going to be charged to one generation. Why? Because you have killed or will kill the chief of all those prophets, even the Son of God. Uh, You're going to kill that prophet. And thus, all the pent-up wrath, as it were, of God is going to be poured out on one generation. Which generation is that? Yeah, he says it right there. All these things shall come upon this generation. He's speaking to them. The Pharisees being representative of uh, the the builders that rejected the stone of Christ. All that's going to come upon that generation. Then he continues. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent to thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now for that verse 39, I believe there's still some kind of future for Israel. But it's going to be belief in Messiah. That's what, it, that's what he's saying. But in, in terms of that generation, he says, your house is left to you desolate. He's going to destroy them. And it's going to be a destruction that has superseded every other destruction, as we shall see. But the this generation there is also the this generation in Matthew 24. I don't think that's out there to believe that. And you'll see at the very end of Matthew 24 in verse 34, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all, not some, but all of these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So, he pronounces judgment on that generation. But it didn't happen right then. So, when did it happen? And he goes on. So, he says to them, that's the last thing that he says um, to the Pharisees. And then, after that, it's he doesn't say anything more uh, to them. Except in his arrest, he um, has some dialogue with them, but it is very little. <clears throat> and in uh, chapter 24 of Matthew, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came unto him to show him the buildings of the temple. So, our Lord has been in the temple and he's pronounced judgment on this nation. And he said that God's going to punish you for all of your wickedness. And for your rejection and killing of the prophets. Of which they hadn't committed the greatest offense yet. And that's killing the Son of God. And the buildings of the temple at that time, if you... Uh, if you read Josephus, and he is to be believed, if uh, I would think that uh, it's accurate. Uh, the temple was made of white marble. Some of the stones were 60 feet long. How long 60 feet? Uh, might be sort of 70 or 80 feet to the back there. They're massive stones. And it says that uh, when you approach Jerusalem from above, from the hills uh, surrounding, that it was like a mountain gleaming with snow. It was a beautiful structure. Um, white, gleaming marble, towering temple, 150 feet tall. Um, and the disciples come to him and say, isn't this a beautiful building? I wonder, you know, it, it, it's just going to be so amazing when you come into your kingdom, what it's going to be like with righteousness reigning and everything, all the things they had in their mind. And they show them the 
beauty of the temple. It took 40 and 6 years to, uh, I think Herod, he made it better. He didn't, I think even maybe they tore it down and rebuilt it. But uh, again, I got so many, so many things I've read. But that to say, it was a beautiful place and they recognized it. The gate called beautiful. Um, the entrance into the temple. Everything about it was beautiful. It was the pride of the nation. It was, um, it was a beautiful structure. And they, the, the disciples pointed out, Oh, Lord, look at this building. Beautiful. And then he says to them in verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now you can imagine in their minds, wow, <laughs> they, they ask this question and they you know, probably waiting for some, not that answer anyway, um, but they continued, um, or when he said that, it says, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. So they, he, they show him the temple, he's in Jerusalem, in the temple, and then he makes that statement, and then they leave, and he walks to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you could see the temple and Jerusalem. It was, must have been a beautiful sight. Um, and as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us. When shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, I, usually when people believe stuff, it's not because it's crazy. It's just because they read something, and then they understand this to mean that, and then they, they come to a conclusion. It's usually not something that's you know, wild. It's not like Mormonism or something where you've got really bizarre stuff happening um, but it's they're looking at the scripture they're trying to be fair they're looking at this over there and that over here and then they're piecing it all together just like pieces of a puzzle and so they say um, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world so he must be talking about his second coming and the end of the world Everywhere, like China, Australia, the end of the world. That's it. And that's how they read it. Um, So let's go over to uh, Mark's gospel. Because um, I think that when we read the other gospels on this subject, so go to Mark 13 and put your finger there. And then go over to uh, Luke 19 and put your finger there because we're going to be flipping back and forth. Because um, Mark 13 and eventually in Luke 21 talk about the same people that believe different from me, would all say that this is the same event. So I don't think there would be any dispute that the Lord is talking about or Luke's talking about 
the same event that Matthew's talking about in Matthew 24 and in Mark chapter 13. So, having said that, that's pretty well, I would say, undisputed in uh, evangelical Christianity. So let's read Mark's uh, account there. And this is Mark chapter 13 in verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Now, we'll go back and read Matthew. Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So, let's read Mark again, because if you're, if you're like me, I'm pretty thick, so... He says, what shall be the sign, or what, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So Matthew says, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Mark says, uh, when shall all these things be fulfilled? So he's, he's asking or they're asking two questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And uh, what are the signs that are going to accompany that destruction of the temple? I don't think they're asking anything else than that. Although in Matthew's gospel, it appears that, um, that he's asking about when, when is your second coming? Now, they may have believed that. They may have believed that the destruction of the temple uh, may have ushered in the kingdom for Israel. After all, they believed that after he rose from the dead, they said, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they had a different uh, theology. They expected a literal kingdom on earth like David's kingdom. And the Lord said, no, that's not going to happen that way. And get on with preaching the gospel. They'll turn to Luke's gospel in... uh, We're going to read 1943 first. Because our Lord um, speaks about it before he gets into it in uh, chapter 21. This is, he's approaching the city, and this is the triumphal entry. And so he's riding in on a donkey, and the Pharisees rebuke him for not silencing the people who said, uh, blessed is the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then he, he, in verse 42, he says, or he comes, he weeps over the city uh, because he saw what was coming. 
saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this day the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground, thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So when our Lord was being in his passion, he's walking the streets of Jerusalem in a cross, with the cross, and then he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but for, thy, for your children. For a time is coming, and then he talks about that as well. Uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then over in uh, chapter 21, <clears throat> so again, he's in the temple, and in verse 5, and it says, As some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said. So they pointed out the beautiful temple to the Lord Jesus. And it's adorned with all kinds of gifts that people have given, um, uh, with uh, goodly stones, beautiful stones. And then he says, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in which there shall be not left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? So two of the Gospels don't even mention the coming of the Lord. Just Matthew's Gospel. Um... And I believe what they're asking is those two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And what signs will there be to accompany that destruction? I think that's uh, fair in the assessment. It seems that um, the coming of Christ that Matthew is speaking of, and that they are speaking of, is not his second coming, but his coming to destroy the temple. And if you, we've read the Old Testament, Day of the Lord, God coming to destroy, again, his temple, uh, and destroy his people, and he used foreign armies to do it. This fits in with every single Day of the Lord passage in the Old Testament. Uh, notwithstanding Joel's prophecy about the locust plague, and notwithstanding um, the cataclysmic flood that was supernatural that destroyed the whole world. But all the other Day of the Lord passages, foreign armies coming in to wipe out the people of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., destroying the temple and killing a whole bunch of people and taking them captive into the land of Babylon. So, Matthew 24 just fits in. Remember the Lord roaring from Zion, I'll shout before my army. My army, he says. He says, I'm going to come and destroy this nation. Well, no, he didn't. 
He used a locust plague and he used an army. But he speaks of it as if he is doing it himself. That is the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, Again, our passage is speaking about, again, a final day of the Lord where he comes in supernatural, universal judgment on the earth. But um, as we can see, the day of the Lord has a framework of which we understand it. And we're trying to understand Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, all of which speaking of the same uh, event. And when you compare them, then you think you would say, and I believe, yeah, people would agree unless, yeah, I, I'm not up against someone who believes the, uh, that this is the literal coming of Christ and the book of Revelation and the whole bit. Um, so, back to our passage in Matthew 24. So he's sitting upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come unto him privately. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign, the signs accompanying that? Uh, Let's not get too wrapped up with his coming. But uh, I believe it's his coming in judgment, not his second coming. And we can, yeah, I'll tell you why I put the piece of the puzzle there. Uh, But it can't be just 11 o'clock, is it? It's 12. It's 12, okay. All right, because I'm thinking, wow, I got, I feel like I've been preaching a long time. I still got a whole other hour. (laughs) And you're like, oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Um, I can get really excited about this, so I hope you can too. (laughs) Because it's just like a dam that's you know, building up for you know, a month and it's got to burst. Okay. <clears throat> so they're, they're asking those two questions, when and the signs. And in verse uh, 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you, and they shall be, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then the end shall come. Now, many evangelicals would believe that those things are still future. They haven't happened yet. Um, 
But when we look into history and we look at Matthew 23, remember we read that before. In verse 34, he says, Wherefore, behold, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. Uh, Verse 9 of Matthew 24, Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Um, It's clear that that did happen at that time. Um, Both the apostles and uh, many Christians were hated of all nations, just not, not just the nation of the Jews, but all nations. <clears throat> but we'll, we'll take it sequentially. Take heed that no man deceive you. <clears throat> Saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. If you read Josephus, there were many false messiahs in that time period. Why? Because... They were looking for Messiah. They knew that this is the time. That's why they came to John the Baptist and said, Are you the Messiah? And he said, No. Why did they ask that question? Because they knew this is the time. They knew that Daniel spoke about this in Daniel chapter 9 and verse, uh, was it 20? Yeah, can't remember the exact, but near the end of Daniel. Chapter 9, they knew that this was the time of Messiah. He's going to come, and they were all in expectation. Uh, Anna and uh, in the temple, they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. Everybody, like, so they were looking for uh, the Messiah. But then Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, and this must be him. And the Pharisees said, no, this is not him. They crucify, kill him, over and done with. So there must be another Messiah, because we know that now's the time. So they've rejected the true Messiah. Only a few people realize that he has risen from the dead, and they're preaching his resurrection from the dead. But as far as the nation is concerned, they're still looking for another Messiah. And so many false messiahs did arise on the scene. I believe in the book of Acts it even mentions one of them. Are you this Egyptian that led 400 people out into the wilderness? So there was at least three or four, and I think Josephus writes, of a multiplicity of false messiahs, some with a greater or lesser degree of impact. Um, You remember one man named Simon Magus who performed great signs and wonders that wowed the people. Um, But then Philip comes along preaching the kingdom of God, and, I mean, Simon looked at his miracles, and maybe they weren't as nice or as good as Philip's. (laughs) But having said that, there were people that could do signs and wonders. Deuteronomy speaks of that. Prophets that would come along and say and do talk about a sign, it would come to pass and then would perform miracles and were telling the people, turn away from the, from the God of Israel. So the, the fact that there can be prophets that do signs and wonders, 
um, isn't unknown in the scriptures. Uh, even uh, Pharaoh's servants could uh, do miracles up to a certain point, and then it was, yeah, they couldn't do anything else. So, take heed that no man deceive you. There would be many false messiahs while the apostles were alive. Um, what happened? <clears throat> For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So many people after Jesus died and rose again, there were other false messiahs. Why? Because the nation was in unbelief. They'd rejected the true Messiah, and they were going to receive many false ones who uh, did lead many astray and deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And when's the end? In their mind. People say, well, that's the end of the world. No, it's the end of the temple. That's the context of this whole thing, is when shall these things be? So the end is, remember, how many years between the ascension of Christ into heaven and the destruction of the temple? Forty years, give or take, right? Um, So we've got, you know, a long period of time. Some people are not even 40 yet here. So it's a long period of time. And in that time, nation shall rise against nation. And I heard one man preaching on this. He says, well, that didn't happen then. Uh, And he's thinking of the whole globe. But when you read historians, Roman historians, and you read uh, Josephus, you will find that there was much turmoil in the world at that time. You had these false messiahs running around, basically leading insurrections. That's in Israel. And then you had different provinces of Rome rising up against Rome and basically rebelling against Rome. Um, You had different factions in Israel. The Jews were greatly divided different factions in Israel rising up against one another. You had many disturbances in and around Rome and um, North Africa, all of that, up into what's called modern-day Turkey, Syria, all of that. Uh, Different uh, people rising up and hearing of wars and rumors of wars. In, uh, I think, from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., which is just a little bit after the death of Christ, his resurrection, uh, Tacitus says, who was a Roman historian, there was all peace in the kingdom, Roman kingdom. And uh, then there was um, Coagula that came to the throne around 40 A.D., So again, we're talking within 10 years of Christ's crucifixion. Coagula came to the throne and other emperors just left uh, Jerusalem alone. Um, But he wanted to set up a figure 
or a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews said, eh, no way. You're not doing that. If you do, you're going to have to kill us and all our wives and all our children and sacrifice the whole nation before we're going to let you do that. So when you thumb your nose at the emperor, guess what? You, what might you think might be coming? A war. <laughs> you might be thinking, uh-oh, we are in big trouble. Like if, you know, you just... Some modern-day thing. If Taiwan just went to China, I'm thinking, yeah. Oh, wow. And men are full of pride. I mean, wow. Just think of what men have done. Uh, think of what David did when they cut off his men's uh, garment in the middle. He's, gird on your sword, man. We're going after those people. That's David. So we can't expect any little. So when, they, when the Jews said that to Coagula, uh-oh, we're hearing of wars and rumors of wars. We're in big trouble. But then Coagula was assassinated. And then it just, pardon the pun, died right there. That whole, okay, yeah, can go back to work again. Um, but then over that period, that 26 years between uh, Coagula's little disturbance there and 70 AD, there was many, many disturbances leading up to uh, getting closer to that time. Um, a man rose on the scene by the name of Vespasian, who eventually became the emperor and he was given the assignment of putting down the rebellion that had started to happen in uh, Judea. And they, the Jews had been provoked by uh, various uh, pagans, and I think someone had sacrificed a bird on the front step of a synagogue in Caesarea, and then one of the procurators, which was, you remember that Pontius Pilate was a procurator of that area, he wanted to uh, collect taxes, and the Jews said no, and then uh, before that, scrolls were burned, and the, the Romans did not have high regard for the, the Jews. They were always fighting. And <clears throat> then that fomented, and then there was 500 Roman auxiliaries. I assume they were not full-time soldiers, but they were there in Jerusalem. And the rebels killed 500 of them, wiped them out. And the people of Jerusalem thought, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. And they were. <laughs> and so that uh, led to a, repri a reprisal from the Romans, and a Roman general came in and with a legion of soldiers. How much the legion was, I don't know. Um, I've heard of 6,000. So he besieged Jerusalem very shortly, and he broke through part of the wall, and through uh, weather conditions and um, some of his supply lines being raided, he withdrew 
from Jerusalem. And this is in the early 60s AD. And then um, in his withdrawal, he lost 5,000 men, and the Jews captured the Roman standard and a lot of siege uh, works, weapons. They, um, and then the people... The leadership thought, we're in big trouble. Rome's going to come in, and yeah, we're in big trouble. And they were, because this is, God was moving circumstances and everything to the destruction of Jerusalem and the fulfilling of his words that he spoke of there right before us in that passage. Behold, not one stone will be left upon another. Um, then a man was uh, named Vespasian was appointed to quell this rebellion in Judea because the zealots had come up, the zealot party, and there was much uh, yeah, rejection of Roman authority and many rebels in the land of, of Israel. <clears throat> There was supposedly only 3,000 soldiers that were stationed in the land of Judea. And um, I think it would have been 66 or 67 AD, Vespasian came into the land of Galilee and he started to um, quell all of the rebellions. And he made his way down, took a couple of years made his way down to Jerusalem. Um, Nero, if you read about Nero, he was a maniac. I mean, he was, he was a, yeah, he was an abominable man. Um, Nero had, had appointed Vespasian to look after this militarily, and then he had cleaned up all the rebel activity he didn't just go kill everybody. He just uh, cleaned up the river. And then he started to advance on Jerusalem. And then through all of the internal political difficulties, uh, Vespasian withdrew. So one year before the destruction of the Jerusalem, he withdrew and went back to Rome. He quelled some rebellions, killed a couple people here, and... Um, fought some battles, and then he became the emperor. So he's the emperor of the Roman Empire in uh, 68 AD, I believe. Again, you might go and check the facts, but uh, <clears throat> by April AD 69, Vespasian had put down most of the rebels, and then he started to advance on Jerusalem, and then Due to political chaos, he withdrew, and he became the emperor. In April A.D. 70, the Romans returned to Jerusalem under the command of his son. So Vespasian appointed his son to go back. And so a year, so the Jews are there. They're terrified, no doubt, some of them anyway. Um, the Romans leave, and then they come back. April, A.D. 70, and they came back with 60,000 soldiers. Now, the Roman army only had 250,000, so this is a 
uh, one-fifth or more of the Roman army is dispatched to take care of one city. (laughs) And it is the son of the emperor Vespasian, Titus. His name was Titus Vespasian, I guess, after his father. So he comes with this army, 60,000 soldiers and uh, 16,000, I call them, support staff. Because you needed people to support the army, because the army can't fight without food and water and supplies. So turn to Luke's Gospel. Again, we're just trying to piece together the puzzle. Luke chapter 21. Yeah, we're, we're going to go back and cover the rest of that material, but we just want to get, uh, we want to get our history in order. And this is the only place it's mentioned, but and we'll go back and look at how Matthew puts it there. So Luke says, And when you see, remember, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age or end of the world? When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then go to Matthew 24 and verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, this was intended for not just the apostles, because... Uh, Matthew adds, Whoso readeth, let him understand. So he expected that people, Christians, in the first century would be alive and would be in Judea, around that area, that would see this happening. And this was a sign of Christ's coming and the end of the world, (laughs) the destruction of the temple. And then he doesn't, uh, Luke doesn't put it that way. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then run for it. If you're in the city, run for it. If you're in the country, don't go back. Just run to the mountains. Get out of there. Uh, because the desolation thereof is nigh. The destruction of the temple And they're not just going to destroy the temple. They're going to just kill everybody. And that's what they did. Because remember, upon this generation, he says, the blood of all the prophets, including myself, Jesus saying, is going to come on this generation. And it was terrible. And we're just getting started. But we'll have to stop. (laughs) Um, Because I could just keep going. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I believe that uh, this is what he was speaking of. And the sign that he was coming was, yeah, all these things happening. He's got many, many signs. But uh, they were just the beginning of sorrows. But the sign, one of the signs was, is that Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, Roman armies with their standards in the holy mountain of God. You read Daniel, 
The holy mountain was the city of Jerusalem. Not just the temple, but the holy mountain. Um, Matthew puts it, the holy place. So when you see that happening, run for it. And many, uh, I think Josephus writes, many pious or Christians, many pious people fled from Jerusalem at that time. Because the day of the Lord was the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous. So the righteous fled. They were told to flee here in Matthew and over in Mark's gospel and as we read there in Luke's gospel. Run for it because the end is near. And I think Josephus writes that there was no more wood for crosses to crucify people. That's how much people were crucified. Titus said, anybody comes out of the city, because they had to. Why? They were starving. They were surrounded. So at night, they would go out and raid the Roman camp and would steal food and provisions and go back in the city. So he said, that's not going to happen anymore. Anybody that's out there, he's surrounded the entire, with a four and a half mile um, wall of soldiers and no one got out and anyone that did was crucified and so in the morning imagine looking out over the wall and seeing this and that and this like hundreds of people being crucified it was a horrible uh, event why because they rejected the true messiah and god was moving in judgment Terrible judgment. But remember, Jerusalem, he wept over the city. But eventually, God's patience runs out. And it did. And he, uh, they had pronounced judgment on themselves at that time when he, he told them the parable of the, uh, the vineyard. And he said, what will those... What will God do to those, uh, or what will the landlord do to those servants? And it says, he bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he did in the destruction of Jerusalem. Again, I think we got maybe two, three pieces of the puzzle out of the thousand put in. Um, But, yeah, there's still much to understand. All that to say... The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, this day came and his day is coming. And uh, I don't believe there will be any signs other than the persecution of the Christian church and Jews worldwide. That's what I believe the sign to us that it is coming. And that has happened down through the centuries. But uh, remember, the day of the Lord will come. coming of Christ will be like a thief in the night. It's going to be a surprise. So we want to be always busy about his business. Let's pray.